Hello, this is Daniel Guzman and welcome to another edition of Commitment to Truth, the outreach ministry of Commitment Community Church, a place for all nations. To learn more about Commitment, please visit our website at www.commitmentchurch.org. Like us on Facebook and even download our mobile app by typing in Commitment Community Church. Now let's enjoy today's message from our pastor, Cedric Brown. Price has been limited to uh, only but that baby in the manger, especially you may see that figurine, you know, um, somewhere, somehow. But uh, in this series, I've been trying to unwrap Jesus in a way that realizing that he, he didn't remain that baby boy, but eventually grew into a, a man who ultimately died on a cross for you, you and I, so that you and I may have life and have life more abundantly. Um, so as we continue to look in this series, uh, my encouragement to you is to uh, rethink um, when, when you come to this Christmas season, because uh, unfortunately we have two major seasons, right, that believers uh, indulge in. You have Easter or Resurrection, right, and, and this very celebratory time. Then you have Christmas, and everything in between seems like it's lost. Um, but if you, if you look at the scriptures uh, thematically, if you would, uh, that's where Jesus Christ was living, and he was living so that you and I may live. So my hope, again, in this series that as we un unpack this part of Jesus' life, uh, we will realize that as we learned last week, that Jesus was abandoned and betrayed so that we will never, ever have to be. And then this week, as we look at Jesus Christ was in bondage and he was abused so that we won't have to as well. And we can walk in victory or walk out of bondage and overcome even abuses that we've had as little children and even in relationships that God can allow us to be victorious in those, in those memories as well. So if you can, open with me to Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And we're going to lay our foundation uh, and look back on Jesus' life again prior to the cross. Uh, Mark 15, verses 1 through 8 uh, says this. Early in the morning, the chief priests and the, uh, with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And uh, binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, it is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. Verse 5 says this, But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Verse 6, Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And it says, The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrection who had committed murder in the insurrection. Uh, the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do. So here we find in verses 1 through 8, as it relates to Jesus Christ being in bondage, you find here clearly in verses 1 through 8 that Jesus could have been released. There's the opportunity at that moment when he says, okay, Barabbas or Jesus, he could have been released at that very moment. But if you look further in verses 9 through 14, it shows us another part of Jesus' bondage. It says, Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Verse 12, answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? It says, they shouted back, crucify him. And underscore verse 14, it says, but Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So again, verses 1 through 8, Jesus could have been released. And you look at verses 9 through 14, you can say Jesus should have been released, right? In other words, he did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. He said nothing wrong. Just based upon his character, his life, he should have been released. But yet he wasn't. Remember the context of this because the scripture says he gave his life willingly. He could have easily summoned legions of angels and said, get me out of this. But he chose to concede. He chose to simply say, even what I am deserving of, I won't be deserving of it so that you and I can have life and have life uh, more abundantly. Now, let's continue. So we first looked at Jesus in bondage. He could have been released. He should have been released. Now, look further at verses 15 through 20. It says, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away in the, pl- the palace, that is a praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting the crown of thorns, they put it on him. So again, starting to mock him. Verse 18, and they began to acclaim him, hell, king of the Jews. Verse 19, they kept beating his head and with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him, continuing, continuing to mock him. So verse 20 says this, after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to be crucified. So again, verses 1 through uh, 14, we see Jesus Christ being uh, in bondage, placed in bondage. And then there's a transition into his abuse found in verses 15 through 20. Now understand uh, the types of abuse that he went through, verbal abuse. He was verbally abused. Secondly, physical abuse, right? And those are very common. Verbal abuse and, and physical abuse. Now, understand this. I want, I want, to, I want to bring out some, some emotional details here. Uh, as it relates to the historical context of scourging, listen to this. The scourging victim was stripped of all his clothes. Okay, so he was naked. Tied to a tall post with his hands above his head, exposing his back, his unprotected back, buttocks, legs, and even neck to the whips of his torturers. Two soldiers, usually legion auxiliaries, administered the flogging, one on each side with alternating strikes. The instrument used was a whip called a flagrum by the Romans. They came in many different configurations, but the one, uh, but the most vicious one most likely used on Jesus consisted of three or four braided leather thongs secured to a wooden handle. Each of the thongs was fitted with alternating lead balls and, a sharp, and sharp pieces of bones tied at various intervals. The inherent weight of the lead balls, which was increased proportionally to the viciousness and strength of the individual scourger, would cause ugly contusions of of the skin and would drive the sharp bones deep in the flesh of the victim. The results would be horrific lacerations from the pieces of bones ripping through the flesh 
like miniature uh, grapnels, leading a bloody, mutilated backside, torn and hanging flesh. It says the blood was so profuse that it will ultimately cause the, the victim to go in shock. Scourging was an integral part of the crucifixion process and was used as a determinant for the length of time the victim would be on a cross. Now listen to this. If the victim was to hang for a long period, the flogging was light. If the victim was scheduled to die quickly because of time constraints, like those in Jesus' case, the flogging was even more severe. The Jewish hierarchy had requested he die before the Sabbath started at sunset. So he received the most severe flogging. Listen, other historians said that the that Jesus' back was ripped open so violently that you could see his, his vital organs from his backside. Now, now, why am I pausing here to, to make you feel this? Well, it's because we need to understand what Jesus Christ went through for you and for me. We need to know the severity. We need to know and catch a visual description in our mind to be able to realize that, you know what, Jesus Christ and even the movies could not depict what Jesus Christ went through, Okay. Right. Uh, even the latest, you know, that came out at the end of the day, it cannot depict exactly what Jesus Christ endured. You see, the scriptures pointed out this way in Isaiah 52, verse 14 in the New International Version. It says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, meaning Jesus, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Let me read that again. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. In other words, again, if Jesus walked through these doors, he scourged, he walks out, you wouldn't recognize him. He'd be so disfigured, he'd be so mutilated that, that you couldn't recognize who that person was walking out of the door. That's what Jesus Christ endured for us as the form of ultimate abuse so that we will not ever have to. Now, that being said, that's our foundation. And hopefully it's sinking in that what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. That being said, because of Jesus Christ staying and remaining in bondage. Okay, he didn't have to. He remained in bondage because he did. He then received all that we, um, we do not have to in this form of abuse. So can you turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter uh, 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 is now going to help us understand the precious gift that, that God gave us through Jesus Christ and what he endured, again, by being in bondage and also being abused for you and I. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, 21 through 25. It says, for you have been called for this purpose. Why? You can ask the question. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So you hear that? So immediately the scriptures are saying to you and I, Jesus Christ has been through something to ultimately show you the way, to give you an example of how you should handle yourself under such suffering or whatever suffering related to your life. Verse 22, it says, who committed no sin? No, no is no. In the Greek, it means no, okay? It, it, there's no sin that Jesus Christ ever committed, all right? It says, nor was any defeat, de deceit found in his mouth. Any deceit. 
So he, think about this. I don't know about you. I've lied before. Anybody could say amen to that? I've lied a few times. None out of Jesus' mouth. None. Zero. But yet he was placed in bondage, but yet he was abused. Nothing, said nothing wrong, did nothing wrong, but yet still was abused. Now, here's our first point found in verse 23. Again, we're understanding because Jesus Christ was in bondage, because Jesus Christ was abused, here's our precious gift. We find a first in verse 23. It says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats like we would, right? But he kept entrusting himself to him, meaning God, who judges righteously. Because Jesus Christ was in bondage, because he was abused, the awesome precious gift we have is that we can now, just as he did, put our trust in him who judges righteously. Why is that so important? So important because our human nature is, Oh, you said that to me, I'm going to say it back to you. You did that to me, matter of fact, I'm going to do it to you even 100% more. Uh, we're retaliatory, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Why do you have to change that, right, Jesus? Right, at the end of the day, if you did something to me, I'm going to somehow get you back in some other creative way. But here we need to understand that one of the 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 first places of your deliverance from bondage and one of the first places of getting over abuse is coming to the place in your heart and your mind that God is in control. That he's in absolute sovereign control and that he's the only one that can sort through the mess. He's the only one can be justifiably right all the time. The word judges in this word, verse 23 means this, to pass judgment on the deeds and words of others. How many times do we do that, right? Someone speak ill towards us. I'm going to be the first one that tell you what you need to hear. I'm going to be the first one that handles this, right? Happens in every relationship. Happens in marriages. Happens with parents and children. Children with parents. Happens with employers, employees. It happens in every form of life, in any form of relationship. Happens with neighbors, right? Stay off my lawn. You know, when you're going to cut your grass, when you're going to clean your house. I mean, we, everything, everything we judge, 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 judge based upon their deeds and their words. But how dare we? Because we're not righteous enough to. Right. So the only one who can judge fairly is who? God. So we must entrust ourselves and trust our. Listen to this, church. We must entrust our past. To God. Because you know why? Sometimes that past, because we're not we don't entrust him with that past. You know, that person who spoke that way to me, you know, that person who abused me, you know, that person who abandoned me, you know, that first wife, you know, that second wife, you know, mom, mom and dad. And even though mom and dad is dead right now, I still are hanging on to mom and dad's words and I have not entrusted him, them to God. And then it affects the second uh, gift that God gives us. It infects it. It infects it when we get to it in verse number uh, 24. But the first step is coming to a clear and radical conclusion that, you know what, God? At the end of the day, I'm done fighting. I'm done trying to sort this through this thing on my own. 
I'm done trying to resolve it on my own. I'm done trying to figure out. I'm done trying to convince my children on what to do and what not to do. You know what, God? At the end of the day, they're yours. Then it leads to our second gift. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sin and do what? Live to righteousness. So once I trust the only righteous judge, then you know what it begins to do? Give me the confidence to live to righteousness. But I first have to take the posture of God, I trust you. Right? It's like, again, we live in the past. We live in the past. Can you imagine yourself plowing a field? And, And this is the way you're supposed to plow. This is the way it's progress, right? This is the way of the harvest. This is the direction that says tomorrow I'll eat. You follow me? That I will, I'll be able to plow the field, seed the field, and then there's a harvest to come. But somehow, way, we think we still need to deal with everything that's behind us. So our challenge is to be able to say, God, you got this. Let me then turn around completely and start living to righteousness. Let me now completely turn around, let it go, let you manage that, God, so I can completely turn to live to righteousness. The word live here means this, to enjoy real life. Here's the dilemma, church. We think that if I deal with this and I fix this on my own, then I can start living real life. You know, if I attain this and I get this and I achieve this, then I can start living real life. Real life is simply saying, God, you handle this and let me keep, let me go on. Real life is God. You handle this. You handle them while I tend to living to righteousness. The word righteousness means this, the state of him as he ought to be. So think about this. God, every time I stay here and mull around in things that you should be handling, I'm not how I ought to be. I know every single time I've mulled around in things like this, it calls me to stay in sin, not to die to sin. Because first, one must die to sin, and dying to sin is simply saying, God, you got this. You got it. You handle them. You handle this situation. You handle this matter. It's too big for me. It's dying to sin. It's dying to self. And you cannot die. Listen, the scripture says, Jesus even said, before seed can live, you must first what? Go into the ground and do what? Die. So there's a requirement before God to say, God, you handle my dad who never was there for me. You handle my mom who who yells and screams at me. Right, you handle the emotions that I've carried into this present life when I was physically and emotionally abused by someone. You deal with that. You handle that. God, I die to that so I can live to righteousness the way I ought to be. The way I ought to be. And the word righteousness also means this, the condition that is acceptable to God. So think about this. Every time I find myself mulling around in things I shouldn't deal with and be handling it and should be God's, I'm unacceptable to God. My behavior and my actions are unacceptable to God. And again, I know me personally, I don't know about you, but every time I've done things like that in every relationship, in every scenario of my life, 
I find myself going back to sin. But when we release it and say, God, you know, yes, that person said something to me that was totally inappropriate. Yes, they, they marred my reputation. Yes, they did this mentally, physically, emotional. Yes, they did that to me. You know they did to me. But yet, God, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to trust my life, past, present, future, into the hands of the one who judges righteously. Then you know what it does? Liberates you. And then now you can focus on living to what? Righteousness in the way that you ought to be. In a way that is acceptable to who? God. And here's the cool thing. That eventually leads to the latter part of verse 24. It says, and he himself bore sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By, for by his wounds you are healed. How many times have you said something like this to God? God, can you just deliver me? Can you just free me from this? God, can, can I stop just struggling in this thing? Why does this have such a grip? Why does every time he says that, it causes me to act this way? Why do I always need a man? Why do I always need a woman? Why do I always, why, 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 why do I need people's affirmation? Why do I need people always to tell me, good job, that a boy, that a girl? Why do I need always the applause of men? Why do I need everything to always be in order and sequential and, and under my control and, and everything lines up? Why, God, Why? And we pray prayers like that, and God is simply saying, well, you, I, I have come, I have lived, so you can be healed. But again, here's our challenge. Will I accept him as the righteous judge? Which then simply says before God, God, I've let go it all. And it's your mess to deal with. And then it frees you up to start living towards righteousness. And when you start living towards righteousness, healing occurs. Healing occurs when a person lets it go and moves forward. The word heal means this, to make whole, to be free from error, to be free from sin. So many Christians are doing stuff thinking that if I get it, I will be whole. Well, you know, if I get land that job, I'll be whole, right? You know, you know if I get that master's degree, I'll be whole. You know, if, if I get that income, I'll be whole. If I move, this is how petty we get. Well, if I go from my apartment to a house and then I'll be whole. Well, then if I get the bigger house, then I'll be whole. That's all. We get so petty. And then we get emotionally deep, like, okay, well, God, you know, uh, the only thing that I'm missing, and I was here, you know, as a single man, I, I just need a woman, you know, because I'm burning with passion. Can you give me a wife? Okay, I get her thinking I'll be what? Then you realize how many holes you have in you. <laughs> Let's be real. Let's be honest. 
You get married, you think, oh, I'm going to be good. Oh, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And you rejoice in your, for the first few hours. <laughs> and that, that's the husband. And that's both. It's not just the husband. It's not just the wife. You know, and, and, but at the end of the day, what it does, it discloses how unholy you are. Which says, back it up, okay, God, I then need to trust you as my righteous judge with those children that I prayed for who have now grown up and are tripping. (laughs) Right? I mean, same thing, you know, young adults, right? You know, teenagers, they don't get it. They don't understand me. It's in every form of relationship. It's, listen, it even happens on jobs you prayed and fasted for and asked God for, and you enter that job, and you're excited about it, and you're just rejoicing and coming to Bible study, study and prayer meetings and typing on Facebook, praise the Lord, God gave me this job, and then you meet, and then you meet people, right? And then you realize how holy you, unholy you are. Right, and it comes back to the realization, God, would I trust you as my judge? Yeah, that is totally unfair what they're doing to me. It is totally unfair that they've passed me over of this, this deserving promotion over and over again. It is totally unfair, God. But will I love God and trust God enough to say, you be my judge? You fight for me. You go before me. Well, I trust him enough, which then leads to freedom to say, let me let go of that and let me start living towards righteousness. And when a person lives towards righteousness, this wholeness occurs and this freedom, you you begin to err less. You begin to sin less because you're not mulling around in places you shouldn't be. Fighting battles you shouldn't be fighting. And then we just, we, we just start, be, you know, we start having issues. Men and women who should be walking in righteousness, now we're, we're, we're skittish. We're like, okay, oh, this is going to happen. Oh, oh. And we just walking around, oh, I can't oh, 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 God, pray for me because, oh. And we're panicking and we're skittish. We become skittish and don't walk in victory because we don't let it go. We're fighting things we shouldn't be fighting. You know, we become, how can I say it, fearful of even relationships that we need in the body of Christ because we don't entrust our lives with the one who judges fairly. And trust your life in the one who judges fairly frees you up, church, frees you up to to live a life that's, you live towards righteousness and that life that is pleasing to God, that is acceptable to God, that life is like you ought to be. And when you come to that place, there's this precious promise of healing. I believe strongholds that have gripped you, your family, your, your marriage, 
your children and your children's children from generations. But all it takes is someone who says, I will humble myself before God and trust the righteous judge. And let me show you how this works. A mom, let's say that her husband ran out on her. What do you think normally happens? She has a daughter, and guess what she says? Some of you probably experienced this. Don't trust him. Don't. No, you make sure you got everything set up. That's bondage. Do you realize that's bondage? It's not liberation. It's not women's lib. It's bondage. It is bondage, church. And then it goes to the granddaughter. Then the great-granddaughter. But it's not until the mother or whoever's the authority says, you know what? Listen, I missed it. What we should be doing, daughters, is entrusting our life to the one who judges fairly. Then there's freedom. Then their marriage isn't cursed like yours was. Then God moves in their marriage like he didn't move, you didn't allow him to move in your marriage. Because typically it's because this happened and this happened in the past. And most of the time we try to figure it out on our own and get it right on our own and ultimately we mess it up. Here's another situation. The challenge is this. Why do I go out and work hard every day? If your motivation is like this, well, you know, I'm working hard every day because, you know, I want my children to have it better than I am. You realize that's bondage? It's bondage because you still are the little boy who's afraid or who was embarrassed because he didn't have the sneakers like everybody else. It's bondage. It's bondage in your past. It's no motivation. There's no biblical ground to say that that's why you work. The scripture says everything you do, let everything you do be for the glory of whom? Not for the benefit of your children. When you do it for the glory of God, then it does what? Benefit your children. He didn't say go out and work for your, your wife and work hard for your wife and do all this. He didn't say any other sort. But what guys would do is because, hey, wait a minute, I saw my mom struggling and my dad wasn't there. And guess what I'm going to do? My wife will never be begging for bread and I'm going to make sure food's on the table. You know why? It's because you're still in bondage from what your dad did in the past. Well, you know, when I get married, you know what kind of community we're going to live in? Oh, yeah, you know, I'm not going to live in like the one I grew up in. Why? It's because I'm still the boy or the girl locked up in that big boy, big girl's body. That's, that's the reality. And I'm in bondage to my past. Versus saying, Lord, I, I, I entrust you. I entrust you to the pain, the abuse, the hurt, the abandonment. I, I entrust it to you, God. Please fight that for me. Please fight, please fight that for me, God, knowing that my dad wasn't there for me. You know, please fight that for me, knowing that my husband, my first husband, really wasn't there for me. And he abused me and just crushed my spirit. God, can you fight that? Can you kill that for me? Can you quench that and destroy it once and for all? 
I mean, it's every situation in life. There is no biblical foundation to be motivated by anything from your past. The only thing that we are motivated in our past for, uh, by is what Jesus Christ did for us. Is what Jesus Christ did for us. That's what should motivate us today. Then we live to righteousness. Then we're healed. Then we're free. Then we're whole. Then we're not walking around just skittish up from relationships and, oh, well, I don't know. Do you trust him? I don't know if he trusts him. Oh, I don't know. Oh, what's going on? What's their motive? Come on. Too much head games. Too much heart gymnastics. Just too much. Well, you know, do I go all in this marriage? I don't know. I don't know if she's going to. Oh, and we just, it's just, it's just like, come on. Come on, church. You're not trusting your wife. You're not trusting a husband. You're not trusting children. You're not trusting parents. Trust in the one who judges fairly. He frees you up to live life like you ought to live it. Which leads to great freedom, which climaxes to the last part. In verse 25, it says, for you are continually strained like sheep. Sounds like us, right? But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. This leads to all of these things I just shared with you. Entrusting your life, entrusting all of your life, and to the one who judges fairly, living to righteousness, walking in your healing ultimately leads to returning back to God. The word return means this. It simply means to return to love and return to obedience. If you love me, you do what? You obey me. I mean, it's, it's just, when you love someone, you just want to be around that person. You just want to be with Jesus. You just want to be with God. You just want to have fellowship with him, right? I mean, think about the love relationships you've always had. You will make time to be with that person you love. If you don't have time, right, you find time to be with someone you love. You will lose sleep. You will, lose, you will, you will subtract time and obligations from yourself to ultimately be with the person you love. And that's what you see this climaxing to, church, is at the end of the day, it's about a love relationship with a holy God. And if that can't motivate you, what else will? What else will? If he gives you something, well, listen, let's be real. We'll be waiting for something else that he get to give us. Right? I mean, that's the way we are. We're selfish little brats. Okay, well, God, g- give me that. Okay, he gives it to you. Well, 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 five years later, okay, well, God, you haven't asked your name my prayers. You haven't given me anything. Right? I mean, we're just short memories. I call it selective amnesia. We're just like selective in what we remember, and it's like, come on now. How much does God have to do to prove that he loves you? That he's worthy for a return back to him. But it all begins, am I willing to say, Lord, uh, take my failures, take my pains, 
take it all. Please, man, you manage this. You, you manage all my heartaches. God, you manage all my fears. You, you manage my future. God, I don't know what to expect in the future, but God, you manage it. God, you manage it. You manage it. I'm not strong enough. I'm not wise enough. You manage it, God. Then eventually it leads to that place of liberation. When you're free, when you're free, when you're free, when you're free and you're whole, all you do is want more of him. It just draws you back, draws you back. It's not, there's no obligation. There's no motivation that's needed. It's just pure love. And that's what this is all about. That's, you look at Jesus' life, man. At the end of the day, he came. He came because of love. He stayed because of love. He died because of love. And he rose again because of what? Let me end with this. Many years ago, it was said that there was an elephant by the name of Bozo that was in England uh, at the circus. And Bozo was, a, was the prominent attraction in, at this uh, uh, circus. Uh, but unfortunately, something happened to Bozo over the years. He began to uh, try to kill his handler, and they said that he even tried to run over some of the kids as they were trying to feed him peanuts within his ca- or through his cage. So unfortunately, the, the manager of the circus said that he had to eventually put Bozo down. But the manager was, was a shrewd businessman, and he says, hey, you know what? I've lost a lot of money on Bozo, and, and I'm going to make sure that I'm going to make some mon- money on Bozo on his way out. So he, he, he called for uh, uh, a group of guys to come and to, uh, a, to stand before Bozo to, to shoot Bozo in the middle of the ring. And uh, right before it occurred, uh, the, this unassuming man came up to the manager and whispered in his ear and said, hey, can you give me a few minutes with Bozo? So he walked into the cage with Bozo. Everybody was astonished. They locked the gate behind him. And everybody, of course, was just became silent, uh, seeing that this man had the courage to even go in the cage with Bozo. Well, uh, it said that this man was whispering something to Bozo, and eventually he approached Bozo, and Bozo let him uh, pat his, his trunk. And he began to lower his ears and lower his head in a, in a very docile position before uh, this man. Uh, man eventually, if you would, calmed Bozo down, tamed, retained him, if you would. He walks out of the cage, goes to the manager and says, he'll be good for now. He says, you don't have to kill him. And he says, well... Uh, well, what did you do? He says, well, uh, this, this elephant, he's from India. And uh, you weren't speaking his language. See, so here's the deal. Uh, Jesus Christ came down unassumingly, walked in this cage with a whole bunch of elephants. You and me. <laughs> Creating a whole bunch of havoc if allowed, trampling over a lot of people. But he came down to whisper something in our ears that should motivate us in ways that nothing else should. And I've been challenging you to hold on to a particular verse. And what I want to do is read this verse and tie it into this illustration. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And this is what Jesus whispered in our ears. 
that you know what should eventually cause us to do? Settle down. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Calm down. Lower your trunk. Quit fighting. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Hey, you know what? I've been locked up too. Bozo. I feel you, Bozo. I know what you're going through, Bozo. I know you're homesick, Bozo. I know you're not of this world, Bozo. He says, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So this is what I believe he whispers to us. This is the language that he speaks to say, you know what? I know it's tough, but I've been there. I know you feel like quitting, but I've been there. I know you feel abandoned. I know you've been abused. I know you've been mistreated, but guess what? I've been there too. And knowing that Jesus Christ has been there, you know what it should do? Just cause us to relax. It's okay. If he got through the cross, why can't we get through our cross? If he endured the pain, the bondage, the abuse, why can't we live as though we're no longer in bondage or no longer abused? Because of Jesus Christ, we're no longer caged animals. We're free. Free. Because he who the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Commitment to Truth, the outreach ministry of Commitment Community Church. If you want to know about Jesus Christ, please visit commitmentchurch.org forward slash start. This website will walk you through having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Please let us know if you made a decision to follow Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Or if you would like to support God's work through this ministry, please visit our website at commitmentchurch.org. Lastly, if you or your family are in the South Jersey area or Philly metro area, please visit us at Commitment Community Church. Again, I'm Daniel Guzman, and thanks for listening.